0: And please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to the book of Hebrews in chapter 5. We continue our series in Hebrews, and it has been some time since we have been in the book due to various other matters coming before us. Um, We are going to consider verses 4 through 10 in the preaching of the Word this afternoon. But I would uh, like to begin our reading at verse 1 to regain the the context of our great high priest. So with that then, let us turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 5. These are, again, the very words of God. Let us receive them as they come from the mouth of God. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, of Melchizedek. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray for the preaching. Our Father and our God, how beautifully interwoven are the holy scriptures. Oh Father, we pray that you would help the minister preach the word in a way that gives glory to God for the whole counsel of God, which testifies to our Lord Jesus Christ, that the people of God would see that the sum and substance of the entire covenant of the Bible itself is to point us to Jesus Christ, that great and glorious Redeemer. And Father, this man cannot do it in his strength, so give the Holy Spirit of God, which is called the Spirit of Christ, to enable the minister to do it. And may that same Spirit be on every every heart that hears this word now. So help me, Father, now glorify thy Son, Jesus, that thy Son may also glorify thee, And we pray this for the sake of the preaching of the word to the glory of God in the name and uh, for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, just to recap where we've been, Hebrews is continuing its central theme, which is the glorious priesthood of Jesus Christ. And the case was made that because in chapter four, the thoughts and intents of our sinful hearts are all laid bare before God Almighty, that we are all naked and stand exposed before Him, that we will all have to give an account to God for our lives, not just the outward actions, which is bad enough, but the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We are in such a great need of a high priest from God to intercede for us. And we have seen what a great high priest we have in Jesus the Son of God who has passed into the heavens, who is revealed as not only God in the flesh, but revealed to us so far as compassionate and sympathetic, that though he is God, he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities as the perfect man who suffered for us, that by knowing such great truths, you are to be drawn to his throne of grace to find help in time of need, and to obtain mercy when you sin. When you need strength to obey the Lord, you go to find grace. When you need forgiveness for sin, you are drawn to the throne to obtain mercy because Jesus Christ is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. And so that's where we've been. And today we continue and see that Jesus Christ has a far better priesthood than the old Aaronic order. Because Jesus Christ is an eternal priest from a different order, the order of Melchizedek, which is a royal priesthood, unlike Aaron's Levitical priesthood. And because of that, Jesus Christ can be the author of an eternal salvation. And we can be eternally secured because of this high priest's order. And so with that, just to introduce our theme uh, our theme is simply this, that by the suffering of our superior priest, Jesus Christ, yours is an eternal salvation. Eternal salvation. What blessed words. We'll consider that theme under three heads on your bulletin. First is Christ's superior priesthood. Second is Christ's strong supplications. And third, Christ's obedient sufferings. First, Christ's superior priesthood. Now, the epistle is now shifting. Shifting. And it's becoming an apologetic. It's becoming a defense of Christ's credentials. The Hebrews faced great hostility from Jews who apostatized to Judaism. And that's what Judaism is. It's apostasy from the true religion. And their attack on Jesus was this. How can you say that a man who is not a son of Aaron could ever be a high priest? Remember thus far the, the epistle has spoken of the Aaronic priesthood. Verse 4, no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. That was the priesthood, you remember, boys and girls, that was appointed under the law of Moses. All the priests were to come from uh, Levi's tribe through Aaron. And that was God's own appointment. No man can take the priesthood on himself. Do you remember what happened in the Old Testament when men tried to? Do you remember Korah and his burning of incense and the earth swallowed him up in 250? Remember Saul and his attempt to offer a sacrifice. The Lord tore away his kingship. No man has the right to take on the priesthood, not unless he was appointed by God. That's the difficulty, isn't it, for our Lord Jesus Christ? For our Lord Jesus descended from the tribe of what? Judah. Judah and not from Levi. Paul will deal with that directly in Hebrews 7, verses 13 to 14. For he of whom these things are spoken, meaning Jesus, pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. You see, the Apostle understands the objection quite well, that Jesus, according to the law of Moses, had no right to attend to the altar. He had no right to the priesthood itself. And this is thought to be sort of the coup de grace, as it were, against Jesus' ministry by Jews who left the faith of their Bible for that new religion, which became Judaism. But the Apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit, dismantles their attack in an astonishing way. By the way, and you'll notice this online, apologists for Judaism, they really despise the book of Hebrews. They loathe it. Because this book makes irrefutable arguments from the Hebrew scriptures. And the way the arguments are framed, they can only come from the mind of God. And so that said, the apostle preaches here, that Jesus is no usurper like Korah or Saul, but that the Holy Spirit himself prophesied that God would appoint the Son of God as high priest one day, and that the Son of God would be a priest of a different order, not of Aaron. Two Psalms are cited as proof of this, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Both show that the Messiah, the Christ, would be of a royal priesthood that far excelled the Aaronic order. So our fifth verse, citing Psalm 2 verse 7 says, Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. The apostle wants you to know this and know it well. Jesus did not take on the priesthood himself. He was appointed by God just as Aaron was to a different order. And the second psalm, we'll get to Psalm 2 another time uh, a little later on, but the second psalm shows that the eternal Son of God, a son of eternal generation, the only begotten of the Father, was appointed to be the king of the earth, right? And so that's the the, what's framed here with Psalm 2. And like I said, I'll get to that a little bit later. And by his resurrection, what you have to see here in that is how Psalm 2 is used in the Bible. Uh, It's not just used to proclaim the eternal generation of the Son of God, It is also to proclaim that uh, uh, by his resurrection, Jesus was proved to be the Son of God. You see that in Acts 13, verses 33 to 34. God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second Psalm. See, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. So what we see is that the apostles see that the resurrection of Christ shows that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, eternally begotten. And you might ask, why here in the citation of the priest's office does the apostle care about his kingly office? Does he not need to defend his kingly office, his priestly office rather? Uh, yes, he does. But you'll see in just a moment what's going to happen is Paul's defense concerns a royal priesthood where kingly power is knit to priestly mercy. So wait for that. But here you see that the Messiah is appointed by God as in Psalm 2 and will be the eternal son of God. Then the apostle cites the 110th Psalm in the 6th verse where the kingly office and priestly office kiss. You remember that if you know Psalm 110, right? They meet in the Old Testament priest-king known as Melchizedek. And he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's a citation of Psalm 110, verse 4. What Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 together show us is that Jesus Christ has a royal priesthood. Kingly power and priestly mercy. That's not of Aaron's order, but of this other order, of Melchizedek. Boys and girls, do you remember Melchizedek's, uh, Melchizedek from Abram's exploits in Genesis 14? Right, You remember he rescued Lot, he slew the pagan kings, and then he went to worship before Melchizedek. We'll have much more to say of Melchizedek in Hebrews 7, but let me read Hebrews 7, 1 through 3, because that's a summary of this figure, Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, think of these things, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is King of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. The parallels between Melchizedek and Christ, then, you're about to see, are far greater than the parallels between Aaron and Christ. Consider it. Melchizedek was a king, and he's called a king of what? Righteousness a king of righteousness, a king of peace, king of Salem. Aaron was no king. He certainly was no king of righteousness and peace. But Jesus is prince of peace, Isaiah 9, 6, and Lord our righteousness, Jeremiah 23, 6. Melchizedek was not just a king, but also a priest of the Most High God, Jehovah. And you see here this one figure in all of history before Christ who is both priest and king. Two great offices converge in him in a way that it never did with Aaron. More than that, we'll get to this, this is so tantalizing in Hebrews 7. He was made like the Son of God, as the, the, is what the Bible says in Hebrews 7. Why is that? What's, what's Paul getting at? Because in Genesis, you find no genealogy for Melchizedek. That's a strange thing for Genesis, isn't it? To have such a prominent figure show up without a genealogy. It is as though he has no uh he's introduced actually with no father, no mother. He's a mysterious figure with no definite as uh, as Paul says, no definite beginning or end. His lineage and his ending withheld purposely by the spirit of God. Why is that? Hebrews 7 says because God was holding him forth as a type of his eternally begotten son to show us that an eternal and better priesthood exists. One that is not limited like Aaron. Now you might accuse Paul of flights of fancy and innovation here, right? It's like, well, this, this sounds so uh, interesting, but is this really true? You might be stretching to use Melchizedek this way. And that is why it is so important that the apostle cites Psalms that prophesy of this very thing. That's why he, uh, um, he uses Psalm 110. And you think of this, from the time of David, the Jews sang Psalm 110 to prepare them for the Messiah to come from the order of Melchizedek and not from Aaron. In other words, this is no innovation or invention of the New Testament to explain why Jesus was no Levite. God had made it plain to them in their hymn book so that it would not be a surprise twist It's not like Paul is saying, you know what? I'm running into a problem right now. How can I find some way to justify his priesthood? No, he comes with the authority of God. And he says, God said that the Messiah would have the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek. That it was God's plan that a superior priesthood would supplant Aaron's. Now, for you who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it really will warm your heart, at least it did for me, to sweetly meditate on all the ways that uh, Christ's priesthood of the order of Melchizedek is superior to Aaron's. So let's do that now. I'll draw out four four marks. you could probably come up with more. But the first mark of superiority is that Christ's is a royal priesthood. Christ's priesthood is joined to kingly, regal power and sovereignty. He is called the king of peace because his kingly power brings peace. It conquers men, and it conquers the hearts of men to God. And that's why our mediator needs the power of a kingly office to subdue our hearts. In Zechariah 6, the Messiah who is called the branch is a priest who sits on the throne. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both, Zechariah 6 verse 13. What that verse is saying is that by joining the sovereign power of a king and the mediation of a priest, Jesus can and will build his church, the temple of God. Something, you think of this, could Aaron ever do it? Could any of the priests in Aaron's lineage do it? Could Aaron ever affect the hearts of men? No, but our king priest can. Melchizedek was called the king of Salem, the king of righteousness and peace. Foreshadowing, beloved, that Jesus will come to bring us righteousness and peace. The king of kings will bring peace. And beloved, What a wonderful thing it is for you to know this, especially as your heart is often so wayward as mine is, as your heart is often out of control, raging with the influence of sin. What a thing that your mediator has the power to subdue your heart as a king, if you would go to him. What a greater thing that Aaron could never do. Aaron could never reach into the hearts of men and turn their hearts to God, But even the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. And so are my, and so is my heart and yours as well. Your mediator can utterly vanquish the great foes of your soul, sin, the world, and the devil. Far superior to the power vested in Aaron. But you think of this and you might be afraid, right? If the holy, righteous savior just had the kingly office without having the priestly mercy that comes from the office of the priest. But he has the power to intercede for you and your sin. He has the power to cleanse you. He has the power to sanctify you and purify you. What a thing it is to see kingly power with priestly mercy. He has infinite power joined to infinite mercy. Go often to this greater priest of the order of Melchizedek, children of God. He is able to subdue your heart and to sanctify you completely. The second mark of superiority is his as an eternal priesthood. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Aaronic priesthood was limited in duration and in two ways. The first is that every priest of Aaron's order would die. When they died, their ministry died as well. Yet Christ died once for sinners, but was raised from the dead And what is the use of that in Hebrews 7.25? Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost, them that come to God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. His priesthood never ends, child of God, and you are saved to the uttermost because of it. But Aaron's priesthood was also limited in duration by way of dispensation. Aaron's priesthood was tied to the tabernacle or the temple. And when the veil was torn, and when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, Aaron's order was ripped away, and it came crashing down with the temple's destruction. Yet, child of God, where does Jesus Christ minister? In the heavenly sanctuary made without hands. His ministry never ends towards you. It is part of his office, you think of this, to ever live for you. Forever, into eternity, your high priest is there caring for you. And for that reason, you can go to bed tonight, never fearing the wrath of God. I was thinking, maybe you have some experience. Maybe this illustration helps, maybe it doesn't. You know how congregations often worry when a new pastor is installed? What will this man's ministry be like? Will he be faithful to preach the cross? Will he lead me to Christ in every way? You wonder if the minister will minister as well as the prior man, which is sometimes to worry foolishly because the ministry is of God. But you ask these things, right? And you say, will he shepherd me faithfully? And even in that, pastors are no priests, right? We don't intercede for you uh, before God. Jesus Christ is. Pastors simply declare the will of God from Scripture, But can you imagine now going back to the Aaronic priesthood and being among the people of God as you watch your high priest die? And you wonder, will this next man, will he be like the sons of Eli, unfaithful, not doing the work of the priest, hated by God, fleecing us? But you never have to worry about your faithful Jesus, neither his character nor his efficacy he is your eternal priest. And you know from this text and we'll cover it more as we go through Hebrews that even when Aaron's and his, when Aaron and his sons were ministering, he was always the true priest in the sanctuary. Wasn't he? Even during Moses, the Aaronic priests were only shadows and type. The reason that David was saved The reason that Moses was saved, think about Moses, the reason Moses was saved was not that his brother Aaron was the high priest, but that Jesus Christ was the eternal high priest appointed by God. Because if we had to live on the mercies procured by Aaron, we would all be damned. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But we rest well knowing who is ministering for us. Yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus Christ is the same son of God, the God-man. And he never changes. And the third mark of superiority is Jesus never had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. Jesus was sinless, perfectly blameless, but in Aaron's order, the high priest had to first offer sacrifices for themselves before they could offer sacrifices for the people. Leviticus 9.7, Moses said unto Aaron, Go unto the altar and offer thy sin offering and thy burnt offering and make an atonement for thyself and then they offer for the people. That's why Hebrews 7 will say of Jesus that he needed not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. That leads to the fourth mark of superiority, the nature of the sacrifices offered. Aaron's priesthood would offer year after year bulls and goats as sacrifices, and none of them, we'll find in Hebrews, truly took away the sins of the people. But Jesus Christ had a priesthood wherein a perfect sacrifice was offered once for sin. And what was that sacrifice, child of God? It was himself, the Lamb of God, without spot or blemish. Himself, Aaron, even if he could offer himself, which he couldn't, would you ever trust that his sacrifice would take away any sin? wouldn't take away his own sin, much less the sin of the world. But the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist pointed him out, without spot or blemish, was perfect and efficacious to purge our sins, so that we may know, as far as east is from west, that by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, all of our sins are clean, washed away, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, listen to these words so well, child of God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14. Jesus Christ, when we we were talking, uh, some of us were talking uh, about Jehovah's Witnesses, And how often the best place to begin witnessing with them is actually the atonement. Because how could a mere man atone for the sins of so many? And yet, what did Jesus offer? As Acts 20 would say, the blood of God. He offered the blood of God by the Spirit of God to atone for your sin, believer. If you believe this gospel, then Hebrews 9 says, How your conscience should be cleansed from dead works. And how your conscience should be seeking to serve the living God. Not having to atone for your own sinfulness. Not having to earn your own salvation. But to live simply and plainly for the glory of God now. That though your best works, right? This is what often plagues our consciences. My best works are tainted with sin. My best works are tainted with pride. My best works are tainted with selfishness and a desire to pat myself on the back. Tainted with sin, all of them. And yet, Jesus Christ purifies them all. He cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for all these reasons, verse 9 calls Jesus the author, the source of eternal salvation. Now, I've often meditated with you all that we read our Bibles too quickly. These two words together, eternal salvation. Should they not cheer your heart? Is that not a phrase to sweetly meditate on? To say, I am saved forever because Jesus authored my salvation and God ordained him to it. You who believe on him, all out of his work, you have eternal salvation justified in him, you are freed from all your crimes against God. Sanctified in him, yours is the promise of a total sanctification, a total holiness in Christ. In seed form now, unfolding in this life progressively, which this life is, as the older theologians would say, is glory begun, right? Grace is glory begun. You have that in him. And then glorified in him, Yours is the promise, and would you sweetly think on this, yours is the promise of your sin nature one day totally plucked away in Christ. In the life to come, no more sin. No more wrestling with our consciences. No more uh, grieving and mourning over our sin. No more having to seek repentance uh, with tears. No more struggling with the Lord. All of that is gone because Jesus Christ is the author of eternal salvation. And that promise, that promise of eternal salvation is yours to have today. Just as God prophesied in Isaiah forty-five seventeen, which is often boys and girls called the fifth gospel. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. What a beautiful promise that is, if you know your sin. Everlasting salvation in a world that never ends. Glorious to consider, and how does it come? By the eternal royal priesthood of Jesus Christ. As you think on these things, in what possible way could Aaron's priesthood compare? Jesus is the superior priest and by God's appointment, and how greatly he suffered to fulfill his appointment in a way no Levitical priest ever did or ever could and that's what we consider next under Christ's strong supplications. Verse 7 says of Jesus who in the day of his fl- days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Our Lord was a man of deep and fervent prayer. But what is in view here are his great groaning Prayers to God in Gethsemane. He cried out as he prepared to go to Calvary for sinners. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke twenty-two forty-two through 44. The Savior of the world, The great high priest, for you who believe, cried out to God with great tears. Why? Because he was to satisfy the wrath of God. Did he cry out for his own sin? Whose sin did he cry out for, child of God? It was what you owed to God, he cried, and with loud tears. All to satisfy the wrath of God, not for his sin, but ours. And see how great then, when you consider his strong crying and tears, see how great his investment is in you, sinner, to count your sin as his sin. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, Second Corinthians 5.21. He was in such agony because he would be counted the world's greatest sinner. He would suffer as the world's worst sinner All the elect's sins coming on his head. For all the people of God, you think of what he was about to suffer as he considered what the cross before him at Gethsemane. All the people of God in all ages, from Adam to the final believer who is yet to be born, all of their sins put upon his head, as sure as that crown of thorns was twisted on his brow. He was appointed to drink the cup of God's wrath to the dregs on the cross. So he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears before he endured it. Let me ask, what priest from Aaron's order would ever do such a thing or could ever do such a thing? None. And once again, this was not a role dreamed up by Jesus. It was the will of God for him. What did he pray in Gethsemane? Not my will, but thy will be done. God appointed Jesus to do it. Boys and girls, if somebody asks, where did God appoint Jesus? You might go to a place like Isaiah 53, wouldn't you? But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. God appointed him in the 22nd Psalm to roar out to him, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He knew his Bible. He knew this was the will of God. So he submitted to it with strong crying and tears, putting himself under the will of God willingly for you who will believe. Again, I ask the question, what priest would do such a thing? What priest could, had the power to do such a thing? None other but Jesus Christ, Son of God, the God-man, mediator, king. And I want you to remember Aaron again, who is perhaps the best example of the Old Testament priest. Ask yourself if you want this man to be your priest. Boys and girls, perhaps what you remember of Aaron most of all is the golden calf in Exodus 32, 21 through 24. Listen to Moses speak to Aaron. What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? He brought such a great sin upon them. And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people, that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us. For as far as this man Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what is become of him. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it me. Then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. The old high priest brought his people into sin and not out of it. He did it by forging a golden calf for them to worship it. And then afterward, like Adam did to Eve, he throws them under the bus and he denies his own culpability. He speaks like a fool saying, I cast their gold into the fire and just magically out came this calf. This is the character of sinful man as priest. Yet Jesus does the complete opposite, doesn't he? He leads his people out of sin. And when they sin, he says to God the Father, he says, no, don't look on them for their sin. Look on me. Look on me. I will purge them of their sin. I will be their righteousness. I will suffer what they deserve. He doesn't throw us under the bus. He throws himself under the bus for us. And he sacrifices himself to God. Sinless Jesus, crying and groaning for his sinful people to become a sacrifice for us. He has never helped us to sin. He has never been culpable for our sin. He never sinned, that is, himself, and he never made us sin, but he took on our sin. Such a priest, perfect, spotless, and blameless, takes on his people's sins for himself. And our text says, in his prayers, God heard him. God heard Jesus in Gethsemane. Why? Because Jesus feared God. He perfectly revered the one who could cast body and soul into hell. How unlike Aaron he is, whose fear of God at his best was never what it ought to be, even where he would make another God for them to worship. Would you want such a priest who's so prone to our temptations and failings that he would actually move us to idolatry? And yet Jesus is heard because he, unlike Aaron, totally feared God. Luke's account in Gethsemane shows us that God heard Jesus, that you would know that his prayers were answered for you and me. How? And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven strengthening him. See, uh, Jesus cries out to God. And you know God favors him because he sends an angel to strengthen him proving that God always hears his prayers. Why? Because God is always pleased with him. When he went to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. John 11, 42. When he prays for you, when this priest of the order of Melchizedek prays for you, believer, when he intercedes for you, what a glorious thing the Father hears him. He always hears him. Always. And our text says Jesus cried out unto him that was able to save him from death. And yet, for so long, it seemed as though Jesus' prayers were going unanswered, right? He cried out to him who could save him from death, yet Jesus hung on the cross and died. But Jesus was saved from death, wasn't he? When? In his resurrection. That returns you to Psalm 2 and Acts 13.33-34. That when Jesus was resurrected, Jesus was proven to be the Son of God, saved from death. As the Bible says, death was unable to hold him. And an application here for you, believer. Beloved, some of your prayers will not be answered straight away or in the way that you expect. Or they will be answered in the life to come. The same was true for Jesus himself. And you take heart in that. But in any case, another point of application is when you are overwhelmed, you must go to him in prayer, child of God. When you are overwhelmed, believer, do you think your great high priest is unmoved? Hasn't that been sort of the point of the last chapter or so of Hebrews, that he is touched with the feeling of your infirmities? Will you remember when you are overwhelmed that your Savior was once overwhelmed, both in body and soul? Will he recall, recall that he said, my soul is sorrowful even unto death? What is that but being overwhelmed? Will you remember he groaned, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Holy Ghost has told you that this Jesus is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. How many ways do you have to look at his example throughout the Bible to really get a hold of that truth? You need to cry out to your great high priest with strong crying and tears, beloved. I guarantee you this. There is not a single person on this planet who has ever lived or will ever live who will be more sympathetic to your groaning than Jesus. There is no one else so moved to save you to the uttermost like Jesus. There is no one else who is so touched with the feeling of your infirmities. Certainly not Aaron, certainly not Nadab, certainly not Abihu, certainly not Samuel, not Ananias, uh, Annas or Caiaphas, nor the usurper, the Pope in Rome, who calls himself the greatest high priest. Now you go to God through Jesus with strong crying and tears. You need to sing Psalm 62, verse 2. I hope you've memorized it. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Who is that rock, boys and girls, in the Bible? It is Jesus Christ. Well, lastly, we conclude with Christ's obedient sufferings. Verses 8 and 9. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all that obey him. Here the apostle reminds us of the sufferings of Jesus Christ necessary to save us. Now, we have to be careful here. The Son of God is a divine person. When we speak of his suffering, we have to be careful. His divine nature never suffered. That's a heresy. It cannot suffer. It is called impassable. It cannot change. And as God, he is forever blessed. You remember that in Luke. He is forever happy in divinity. Romans 9 verse 5. Speaking of Jesus, whose are the fathers and of whom uh, as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. Here he is in the flesh, but as God, he is overall blessed forever. Amen. Happy forever. But in his humanity, in his flesh, he truly and really did suffer. And we read that in his humanity, he learned obedience through his suffering. What did he learn exactly? Jesus Christ, as a man, never once disobeyed, right? Obedience to him was as natural as it is for us to breathe. He didn't have to learn how to obey. He didn't need to learn how to be obedient. But the sense of the text is that he learned the experience of obedience. And that is supremely important. He learned, and this is something we must learn, the demands of obedience in a fallen world of sin. Obedience, child of God, and and this really, you need to have this frame of mind. Obedience in a fallen world often comes at a cost. It will cost you to obey. Obedience in a fallen world often requires suffering. And Jesus was obedient to the purpose of God for him, even to death, even to the death of the cross. Why? Because of his total obedience to God. You who believe, you think of this, you are saved having Jesus' perfect righteousness imputed to you, are you not? And how wonderful it is that his obedience was tested with suffering. His obedience was tested with affliction. You know, if, if, if God had Adam in the garden, right? And he did, obviously. But if Adam obeyed for a while in paradise, You might sometimes question, would Adam truly obey when it became difficult? When it became so hard that he would have to put himself to death, so to speak. But you know that your Savior's obedience and his righteousness was tested with suffering and affliction. When obedience for him required a cross when obedience required being smacked in the face, when obedience involved taking the insults and contradictions of sinners, Jesus Christ chose to obey. And he obeyed perfectly. And for that reason, I praise God, because I know my Savior's obedience was tested in every point. And he came out as gold. And so my righteousness before God has been tested, not because of myself myself, but because of Jesus. He never once gave in, that's what's so beautiful about Matthew 4, Luke 4, the temptation of Christ. He never once gave into the devil's temptations to abandon righteousness. And he did it in a wilderness, not in paradise. And his righteousness was tested, even at such a great cost to himself. Why did he do it? For the sake of being perfected, to be our perfect spotless high priest, to offer himself to God. And the text says, So doing, he became the author of eternal salvation to those who obey him. Once again, how could any priest of Aaron's order compare to this marvelous Jesus? You know, if, as the saying goes, the best defense is a good offense, how Paul utterly demolishes Judaism here and says, why would you even want Aaron as your priest when you could have Christ instead? But learn the application of this point to yourself too. The world is going to make you suffer for obedience to God. The devil is going to make you suffer for obedience. And your indwelling sin so close to your heart will cause you to suffer for obedience. But as you do, child of God, and you need the grace to to obey in the face of adversity, or you need mercy to because you did not suffer for obedience, the Lord is tender and pitiful to you. You know there is a special kind of grace found in suffering for obedience to uh, to God, believer, because Jesus Christ experienced that Himself. And what a thing it would be if you would resolve that I will obey no matter the cost, knowing that Jesus Christ will give you the grace to endure. If you would seek Him, because He smiles so beautifully on that, because He says, "I did the very same thing, child of God. I was, I, I, I was, I had to do it in, in my own." Uh, strength, so to speak, in my own person, but I will help you endure as I endured. And um, on the other side, affliction teaches you submission to the will of God as well. You know, you think about this, you learn to submit to God better when you uh, uh, are afflicted. William Tong, who wrote Henry's commentary on Hebrews, says this, Here he has left us an example that we should learn by all our afflictions a humble obedience to the will of God. Here is what he says. We need affliction to teach us submission. We do, friends. When afflicted, we need to learn to submit to the will of God for us as Jesus did. We need to learn with strong cryings and tears to say what? Not my will, but thy will be done. Beloved, Again, as we go back to something I've said a couple weeks ago, take heart that in the in this world, you find that your life is but a vapor. But in the world to come, there is no suffering for obedience. For now, you will suffer for obedience uh, until glory. Obedience often comes with affliction and suffering. And you need to get that straight because sometimes we wonder, I am doing the will of God. Why do I suffer so greatly? Will you think of Jesus when you do? When it comes at a cost where your parents and your friends and your family maybe will revile you for doing the will of God. And it does cause suffering. Will you resolve to say, my Savior knows and my Savior understands. When children, uh, when others mock you because you will obey the Lord. Will you say that the Lord Jesus Christ understands what that is like because he himself endured the contradiction of sinners. And my obedience is often going to come at a cost in this life. But that is what the Bible says is laying up treasure in heaven. And you have to look at it that way. Until glory, obedience comes with affliction and suffering. And the text says that to those, and this is the last thought, that those who obey him, he saves. Now you might say something like this, "Uh, Pastor, that sounds like works righteousness. Is that not contrary to the gospel of grace well you have to understand very carefully what is meant here and you have to also never give up this thought that the gospel requires obedience to its message in other words your duty and this was a point of controversy that Spurgeon dealt with your duty is to have faith in Jesus Christ that is the duty of every man is to have faith in Jesus Christ. Romans one five, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Mark one fifteen, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Here's the commandment repent ye and believe the gospel. And what happens to those who do not obey the gospel of God? Second Thessalonians 1.8 In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll deal with this maybe another time. You never take the hyper-Calvinist error that posits man must not hear of his duty to believe and repent. Acts 17.30 And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth, all men everywhere to repent. You can read Spurgeon versus the Hyper-Calvinists, the battle for gospel preaching by e. H. Murray for more on the controversy. It came out mostly in the particular Baptist camp because I think Presbyterians understood the free offer of the gospel. That while faith is a gift and repentance is a gift from God, God uses means to give it. And the means that he uses is the gospel commandment Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So I will say to all of you here, it is your duty before God, all of you, to believe on Jesus that God has sent into the world as a great high priest and king. And you think of this, this is man's duty. What a sweet duty it is. What could he ask for from you that is sweeter than this? that my duty to God is to believe on his only begotten son and be saved from all my sins. What a duty God has laid before all men now in the preaching of the gospel. Not follow the law to be saved, not to go to Mecca, not to go to these places and make pilgrimages, but your duty before God, all of you friends, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved What a gracious God this is who lays up this duty before all men. This is the best duty of all. What kinder duty could God ever give to man? Under the covenant of grace, faith is the condition to have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 You who believe have everlasting life, and it is the duty of all men to obey the gospel call. Well, for those of you who have everlasting salvation in your everlasting priest, all I will say is go to him continually. Never think he has done his work on the cross and then his priestly work for you is over and done. He beckons you to the throne of grace continually. You are in constant need of grace and mercy as I am too. So praise God that Jesus is a high priest constantly giving us grace. Our problem is there is an inexhaustible fountain of grace and mercy, and yet we are not found drinking from it. And that is a great, great problem. To have sweet fellowship with this Jesus. What a beautiful thing it is to drink from him constantly. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Isaiah twelve three. Do you know this joy, believer? Constantly drinking of the Savior's life-giving waters with joy. When tired, when troubled, drink of Jesus. Why will you drink out of the world's broken cisterns? Why will you drink out of sin? Why will you not commune with Christ? Open his word, pray to him, sing psalms of praise to him. Never weary of Jesus, beloved. There is a grave charge God lays against us. Thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Isaiah 43, 22. Are you weary of Jesus? What a solemn, solemn, and sad, sad thing that is. Resolve to spend time at the feet of your high priest, even when you sin. Don't simply say, well, Lord, forgive me, and I'm going to walk on my way. But what did that publican do at the temple? He pleaded for God to have mercy, and he spent time with the Lord, didn't he? He didn't just say a quick, perfunctory prayer. He spent time with the Lord. And you have to think he meditated on what he had done. He meditates on how sin deceived him. And that in the future, that God, through Jesus Christ, would lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. This is how you go to your high priest. As a king, as well as priest, he is there for this purpose, to strengthen you and defend you. Today, you have heard of his sympathy. You have heard of his compassion. You have heard of his cries and sufferings for you, believer. In every possible way, Jesus Christ is there for you. Your folly and mine is not availing ourselves of such a great high priest. So take him constantly and forever, blessing God for such a great high priest as Jesus. Amen. May God bless our meditation on Christ. Please rise for prayer of Abel. Lord, our God, what a great high priest you have given us one that no man could ever fathom or imagine in his own imaginings. We thank you for the order of Melchizedek prophesied centuries, millennia, before Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. We thank you for our eternal high priest. And if any here do not know the forgiveness of sin, if any here have thought, well, perhaps one day God might regenerate me if I just stay in the worship service. And I've never heard it is their duty to close with Christ. It is their duty to receive him by faith. And that you work through such proclamations of the gospel as that. Help them, Father. Help them have Christ lay hold of them. That they might believe the promise of the gospel for themselves. And that as Christ lays hold of them, that they would lay hold of Christ. Bless the people gathered here. Would you give them more of the Savior today as they depart than they had when they first came in? and that they would see the unsearchable riches of Christ just a bit better, that they would be prepared for glory to come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.